So good morning, everyone. Uh, good morning. It's a spirited ride into uh, to church this morning for me, so I'm just happy to be here. Uh, but as Bill mentioned, we're back in Mark. Uh, we're looking at the next part in Mark 11, um, verses 12 through 25. And um, previous lessons last fall, if you can believe it's, it was all the way back to last fall, um, I think end of November, um, we are leading up to the first Palm Sunday, which is where Bill left us, I think, in his last teaching. And it was Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. By now, of course, Jesus was famous across the region of Galilee and Jerusalem. And he was healing people almost everywhere he went. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, his teaching was unmatched. He was, he was the big news story everywhere he showed up. Uh, large crowds were following him everywhere, and he was now in, in the Jerusalem region for the Passover. And the religious leaders there, as we've seen in, in previous lessons, um, they hated him for challenging their hollow religious zealotry, uh, for calling them out on their hypocrisy, and so they were actively devising ways to kill him. We've heard this before. So when Jesus traveled to Bethany, which was just on the outskirts of Jerusalem, where a lot of the religious leaders were located, tensions were high, as you would expect. What would Jesus do? Would he go into the city? We, of course, know the answer to that question. He did go into Jerusalem, but not in the way that anyone really expected. He would ride in on a young donkey, just like Zechariah had prophesied over 500 years before. This was a kingly act. Jesus came as the Prince of Peace, riding on Animal of Peace. And the crowds around him, as you remember, were spreading their cloaks and branches before Jesus and shouting, as we read in verses 9 through 10 of chapter 11, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And that's really the height of excitement that Mark portrays here. Because the very next verse, it's a bit anticlimactic, as you recall. What's it say? It just says that he enters Jerusalem, he goes into the temple, he looks around at everything, he realizes how late in the day it is, and then he leaves the city. He goes back to Bethany where he was staying. That's not exactly the most triumphal of entries as described by Mark. The accounts of Matthew and Luke and John, yes, it's a triumphal entry. Luke reports that the city was so electrified that the stones were ready to cry out. But Mark's account is noted for what doesn't happen. It's a continuation of a theme that we've seen over again in the study of Mark. The mistaking of enthusiasm for faith and popularity for discipleship. Jesus isn't confessed in this triumphal entry, but only in his work on the cross. And as Bill taught in the previous study, this is the first of Mark's clues that the temple is not the habitation of God's son, Jesus. So that's where we pick things up this morning. We're going to read the text, starting with verse 12, going to 25. So verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany... He was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. 
and his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. For if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So the title, really the only title you could really come up with for this this portion of Mark is Figs and Faith, right? I mean, that's that's pretty obvious, right? That's what we're talking about. And the theme that I hope to convince you of is that faith in Christ is all that matters. So you probably noticed that this text was in three different sections. And if you've been able to catch at least a few of these lessons in Mark over the last almost year, um, you probably also noticed that we have here is a classic example of a big, juicy Markin sandwich, right? The first group of verses, 12 through 14, we see Jesus cursing a fig tree. The second group, 15 through 19, we have Jesus cleansing the temple. In the final passage, verses 12, 20 through 25, we get Jesus teaching his lesson from the withered fig tree. This sandwich is a chiastic structure, and when we have chiasms with an odd number of components, we see that the center part of the chiasm, in this case the meat of the sandwich, is the part that the other elements are supporting or focusing on, and we'll see that. So the center of this section regarding Jesus in the temple is where we'll be spending the majority of, of this study. So as we just reviewed, Jesus is staying just outside Jerusalem in Bethany, which is about two miles outside the city. And verse 12 picks up the following day, which is very specific for Mark, as we've noted in previous lessons, where Jesus is on the road again, headed back to Jerusalem. And he was hungry. And there were no rest stops on this two-mile stretch of, of road between Bethany and Jerusalem. But there happened to be this really nice-looking fig tree in the distance. And so Jesus walks to it. It was far away, but they could see that it was full of leaves. And when they finally got close to it, they could see that leaves were the, actually the only thing growing on it. There was no fruit of any kind, which, as you would expect, is a little disappointing. You walk all the way over to this thing. You're hungry. You're le- there's leaves on it. You expect something on it that you can eat, and there's nothing. But then there's this peculiar statement at the end of verse 13, 
It says, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And then things get more confusing in verse 14, where Jesus, in fact, curses the fig tree, telling it that no one will ever eat fruit from you again. And we're specifically told that the disciples heard this. So is anyone else confused by these, these statements? Right? I was confused. It seems there's a lot of confusing contradictions that, quite frankly, just don't really make any sense, but that's because we live in southeast Michigan and not the, the Middle East area. We don't have fig trees growing in our backyard. It almost sounds like Jesus is being um, like unreasonable. Yes. Right? Right. It's like I, I read it and it's like. That's the way I felt too. Yeah. It's like this, this doesn't make sense. For something that's out of season. Exactly. Exactly. So, what exactly is going on here? <laughs> you might ask. Expectation of figs, no figs, it's not the season for figs, the tree is cursed. The answer, of course, here is it's all in the details. So bear with me as we learn a little bit about fig trees. A typical mature fig tree will produce figs between the months of August and mid-October in that part of the world. By the way, I knew this guy in Cleveland, Ohio, when I worked at the, at the plant there. Um, he was an Italian gentleman. He had a fig tree growing in his backyard. And say, how would you grow a fig tree in northern Ohio? You bury it in the wintertime in a box. That's what he did. And he got a lot of figs from this tree. I mean, he'd, he'd give me bags of figs every week I went down there for months uh, at the end of the summer. But that's a, that's a sidetrack. <clears throat> so after the harvest, in, in mid-October usually is the last harvest, they then produce these little buds, which aren't really fruit, and they remain in that state throughout the winter months. These little buds are on there throughout the winter months. And obviously the winters over there aren't the way they are here, especially this morning. But then in the spring, March to April time frame, these little buds get bigger, and they swell into what are called pagim, which is a Hebrew word, P-A-G-G-I-M. And later in the spring, the same branches on the tree start, start sprouting leaf buds. So how is this relevant? Well, the tree produces these buds, or pagum, before it produces leaves. So a leafy fig tree would be expected to have lots and lots of pagum on the branches in various stages of maturity, and people would eat these. They're, of course, much smaller than figs, but there would be lots of them on the tree. <clears throat> so in verse 13, when Jesus sees this fig tree in full foliage, he rarely expects to find a snack of edible pagum because it's in the spring, not the fall, not the season for figs. Jesus wasn't expecting figs. He was expecting these edible buds, this pagum, and he expected a lot of them because, again, the tree had lots of leaves. But it ended up just being lots of leaves. Big, beautiful, leafy fig tree with nothing on it to eat. It was all just for show. There was no fruit. And so Jesus curses this tree whose main purpose was to produce fruit. And I think this distinction is very important. Remember, he's not, he's not cursing the tree because it's not producing the choice, ripe, large figs. Rather, this particular tree can't even produce these little buds that are almost nothing. You'd need a handful of these just to make them worth putting in your mouth as a snack. In the springtime, no less. Even 
even the worst of plants look great in the springtime, right? My, my yard looks beautiful in the springtime. All the plants look beautiful in the springtime. And this tree looked really good. Don't forget that. It looked like a million bucks, but it was worthless because there was no, no fruit. And so he tells the tree, no one will eat, ever eat fruit from you again. You can't produce the barely fruit pegum in the spring. You are done. You will never produce any fruit of any kind. And then what does it say at the very end there? And his disciples heard it. And we'll touch back on this a little later, but remember that. They heard Jesus curse this fig tree. And I was actually a little surprised, and I probably shouldn't be, but I found in my preparation for this that there are are so-called Bible scholars out there who interpret this text in verse 13 just along the lines of what Bill was saying, that Jesus was making a vindictive and irrational curse on this poor, innocent fig tree They had nothing wrong with it whatsoever because it just wasn't the season for figs. So what's up with this Jesus doing these irrational things? And that type of teaching is an example of why we have to be so discerning in what we consume in the study of Scripture and what the experts, the so-called experts, have to say. The sermon is so important. And just think about the dangerous ripples of thought that could come from that sort of teaching. right? So just something I wanted to mention there. Any questions about fig trees before we move on? Bill? No? That's great. So the next part, the center of the sandwich, is where Jesus cleanses the temple, as it's commonly known. So recall in the review at the beginning of this study, the first thing Jesus does after entering Jerusalem is entering the temple. He goes in, he looks around, and then he goes home. But the next day, he's back in the temple. And right away, he's driving out those that sold and those that bought in the temple. And he overturned tables of money changers and kicked over the seats of those selling pigeons or doves. And we're told that he wouldn't let anyone carry anything through the temple either. So this is a famous New Testament Bible story, right? This this account is probably one of the top ten Bible stories that you learn as a kid if you're growing up in the church. And even people who don't know much about the Bible know about this story. And so our perception of it is based on some of these stylized, perhaps inaccurate depictions of actually what went down. And we're going to spend some time on those differences because it's relevant to this study. <clears throat> so the temple that we're talking about was the rebuilt second temple built by Herod. Remember, the second temple was built under the leadership of Zerubbabel. This is documented in Ezra, which we, we did sermons on, or Pastor Jeff did sermons on a few years ago. But Herod's temple was still under construction during Jesus' day, and it actually started all the way back in 19 BC. And while the temple building itself was built around the same dimensions as Solomon's temple, Herod extended the surroundings. Herod was quite the builder, I found out. He built lots of magnificent structures. So the temple itself was actually built within a year and a half. But the additions, which consisted of various outbuildings and courts, took nearly 80 years to complete. And the whole complex was absolutely massive. Just as a matter of comparison to something that we can relate to, uh, Solomon's temple, which was not by any means a small building, was about the width of a football field and about half the length. Herod's temple complex, on the other hand, which encompassed that footprint and more, 
That was the size of an entire NFL stadium in the parking lot, right? It was, it was huge, and it was grandiose. The, the pillars around the outside wall, you needed three people with their arms joined around them to, to reach around the, those pillars, and there were just you know, countless pillars on both sides of this wall. They were 35 feet high. It was just something to behold. So Herod extended the temple area in the north and the south beyond the sacred area of the second temple. And since it was essentially on a mountain, and probably the reason it took 80 years to complete, for him to do this, he had to construct these massive retaining walls and bridges that provide access from the city area to the temple mount. So the eastern and western walls were over 1,500 feet long, and the northern and southern walls were about 1,000 feet long. The platform enclosed by these walls was, as you can imagine, massive. It could easily accommodate 70,000 people. And there was a court within the outer court that was 800 by 800 feet, which was closed off by a five-foot wall, and thought that this was the area of the original temple precinct, or the area around the original temple, and this court area was considered sacred. No Gentiles were allowed within that area. And I read that there were actual warning signs posted all around the perimeter of this area. Read, and I wrote this down, this is an exact quote, it says, No foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surround the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. So they were pretty serious about keeping unwanted people out of this sacred area. And also within this court was the inner enclosure, which contained the temple proper, the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, the court of priests, and the altar, and the place where they were slaughtering animals. All of this was within this, this inner area. So it's commonly thought that the events of verses 15 through 17 probably took place in this outer court south of the inner enclosure. So that was a very poor representation that I drew because I was late getting here this morning. But this, this is actually the temple, right? So that's like half the size of a football field. These walls, which are covered with these portico areas with the pillars I talked about, all around the perimeter here. And this whole area outside of the, the inner enclosure is 35 acres. 35 acres, which kind of puts things in perspective. It was absolutely massive, and it was all built on the side of a hill using these, these retaining walls. Apparently that took 80 years. <clears throat> so the event, again, took place in that outer court area, the 35 acres, south of the inner enclosure where the commercial activities took place. This area was the largest area, as I mentioned, and it was the only common area for everyone, not just the Jews. So it was commonly called the court of the Gentiles. This massive enclosed area was filled with merchants who sold sheep and doves for sacrifice and also exchanged foreign currency in the Tyrian shekel, which was the closest available currency to the Hebrew shekel. And this was basically just a, a, a pure metal coin of some sort without any image on it. And that, that comes and commanded in Exodus 30, verses 13 through 16, if you want to see some history on that. But these temple precincts conducted the business. Uh, this was all overseen by the Sadducees. 
And you can just imagine the immense scale of this operation in this, in this structure. The huge quantity of animals, 35 acres of animals. That's a small farm. And people buying these animals. And a trail of people and animals leading into the altar to be sacrificed. And the priests killing them and burning them. And there were literally thousands of priests doing this, right? They were running this operation. And as a matter of context, Josephus, the well-known Jewish historian, of course, wrote that in A.D. 66, the year the temple was completed, right, the end of the 80 years, a massive number of lambs were sacrificed at Passover. 255,000 lambs were sacrificed during the period of seven days. That's 36,000 lambs a day during this period of time. Like, I, I can't even imagine that. I mean, that had to be a surreal environment to even, even see that, even for the people that live this every day. right? You can just imagine the operation, the enormity of, of that operation. And it was also very profitable, as you would imagine, for the Sadducees. There was money to be made selling animals and exchanging currency. Lots of money. <clears throat> and lots of room for nefarious means to take over. And this was likely happening. And as we've always been taught, Jesus recognized it, and shall we say, caused some interruptions with this operation. He drove some of them away, overturned some tables and seats. And as I mentioned before, I always kind of had it in my mind that this would be a different situation than I've come to realize knowing these details and what probably happened. In my mind... This takes place in a reasonably sized building or area. Jesus comes in and literally tears the whole operation down, right? That's, that's what I had in my mind. It takes a few minutes. Everything comes to a standstill. But knowing what I just told you, the enormity of this place, this system, the place he went in to do this is on 35 acres, right? I'm not saying Jesus could not have overturned every table and money changer in that 35 acres, He's Jesus, after all. I'm saying it's not likely, given what we know in subsequent events. Had they actually done that, the Roman garrisons, which is the little area I've got drawn up there in the top corner, they would have shown up and put a stop to it before he got through all 35 acres, right? And we don't have any, any um, you know, history of that actually happening. But as we'll see next week, his actions were enough to get the attention of the Sanhedrin. We'll see that in the very next verse, in verse 27, when we, we uh, get into the lesson next week. So a few things to note here. Because these actions did not occur within the inner enclosure, a sacred area again where the temple was located, they were not designed to restore the holiness of the temple. And this understanding lends itself to understanding the importance of Jesus' teaching implied by him, quoting Isaiah 56, 7, which is, this is the latter, latter half of verse, verse 7, Isaiah 56, 7, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So what did Jesus actually do here? Well, there are four specific actions in 15 through 17. The first, of course, is he drives out the merchants who were selling and the customers who were buying presumably these blemish-free animals for sacrifices. This would have been required for pilgrims from outside Jerusalem who, who did not or could not bring these animals with them. 
to sacrifice, of course. They also may have been selling other items needed for worship, such as wine, flour, and oils. They also could have been selling other items completely unrelated to worship, such as food and drinks and crafts, concession stand and art fair type of material, right? Secondly, Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those that sold pigeons or doves in some translations. And this money-changing operation was the main source of income for the temple because they generated a, I'm told, 4 to 8% surcharge, which is pretty decent. This allowed the priests and others to be paid and provide funding of public works within the temple area. The exchange allowed the temple tax to be paid in the required currency, as mentioned, the Hebrew shekel, rather than in coins of a varying quality that would show up in this area. Um, coins back then were really a standard, and they'd be minted in a multitude of different areas from different regions of the world at that time. So they wanted to commonize it. It also allowed pilgrims to buy the sacrificial animals that they needed, and pigeons and doves were the sacrifices of the poor, as we heard from uh, Pastor Jeff's recent teachings in Leviticus. The third thing, Jesus would not allow anyone to carry anything through the outer court. And the word here for anything is skios. This is the, the Greek word, skios, meaning anything or object used for any purpose, and also a container of any kind. So it's very, very general. I really couldn't find, it doesn't seem like anybody really knows what this actually means. Um, the, the common conception is that he was preventing people from carrying ordinary profane containers or implements from outside the temple mount through the outer court, but we're not really sure. And again, there wasn't a takeover planned here. That would have required removal of the high priest of the temple, and he was appointed by the Roman governor, so that would have gotten the attention of the Roman authorities, and there were lots of them nearby, of course. Also, Jesus' action did not trigger an intervention of the Roman troops, again, who were stationed in the tower up there. The fact that he drove out not only the sellers, but also the buyers, makes it unlikely that his action was primarily directed against the exploitation and corruption connected with the temple. Rather, Jesus' actions against the money changers and the sellers of sacrificial animals were symbolic, which was evident by the location being in the outer court and the relatively small scale of the event relative to the size of that enclosure. The interruption of these operations symbolizes the interruption of the sacrificial system. And the announcement that the atoning function of these sacrifices will be replaced by Jesus' atoning death. We saw Jesus mention this in 1045. If we go back a few lessons, he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The fourth action of Jesus here in verse 17 is teaching. What is being taught is summarized with the quotations from Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7 through 11. 7, 11. <clears throat> the familiar question, is it not written, is something Jesus uses when referencing Old Testament quotations for his Jewish audience. And it summarizes the promise that Gentile nations will be converted. We mentioned this just a few minutes ago. Isaiah 56, 7b, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. 
And Jesus makes this statement while standing in the one court of the temple area that is accessible to Gentiles, which emphasizes the phrase, for all peoples. So the point of Jesus' symbolic demonstration in the non-sacred outer court is not so much a critique of commercial activities that may have prevented Gentiles from worshiping, but as an announcement that the time has come for the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about the last days in which the nations will stream to the Lord's temple on Mount Zion. There's lots of Old Testament references here. Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 5. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6. 66, 18 through 24. Micah 4, the first part of that, and Zechariah chapter 8, if you're interested. So the second Old Testament quotation here that Mark captures, after Is It Not Written?, Uh, This is prompted from Jeremiah 7, verse 11. And that reads, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? And Jesus is not using this expression to describe problems with the sellers or temple management, although that's probably well-deserved in this case, knowing what we know. Rather, the usage references Jeremiah's temple sermon which was delivered at the gate of the Lord's house because it recalls the prophet's condemnation of the false confidence of the people of Judah who think that they can commit the most serious, egregious sin since the temple guarantees their safety. Go back and read uh, Jeremiah 7, the first 10 verses. It kind of gives that story if if you don't remember. We don't have time to really get into it today, but Jeremiah directed this statement as the acceptance of sinful behavior that cannot be compensated for by verbally acknowledging that the temple is the temple of the Lord that keeps them safe. In Jeremiah 7, we read that what happens to the den of robbers, right? This is not an offer for repentance and restoration, but a prophecy of judgment and destruction. And Jesus speaking these words publicly, that the confidence of the priests and the people that the temple would guarantee national security was misplaced, and that the temple would be destroyed. And this is a not-so-subtle statement that corresponds to the fact that he predicted, both privately now and publicly, the destruction of the temple. And we'll see this in verse, or chapter 13, the first two verses of Mark. And this also corresponds to the fact that Jesus will be accused within a few days of having threatened to destroy the temple, both in a trial in chapter 14 and during the crucifixion in chapter 15. This means that when Jesus, again, by quoting Isaiah 56-7, announces the beginning of the time when the Gentiles will worship the God of Israel. He does not anticipate a reformation of the second temple here. Rather, he anticipates the worship in a temple, quote, not made with hands, as witnesses state in his Jewish trial. Again, chapter 14, we'll get to that, verse 58 to be exact. This is a spiritual temple in which Gentile believers will worship as well. Again, this was stated previously. I'm going to mention it again because it's worth worth stating again. Since worshiping God without atonement for sins is impossible, Jesus' two prophetic announcements of, one, the Jerusalem temple's destruction, and two, the Gentile worship of God, both point to the significance of Jesus' atoning death, right? Right? Again, this is predicted and described in chapter 10, verse 45. 
which is one of the keys to this whole passage. And verse 18, at the end of this, this section, addresses any doubt about whether anyone was listening to what Jesus said in his teaching here. Mark assures the reader that the chief priests and the scribes, these are the primary antagonists, of course, that we've referenced in earlier lessons, had indeed heard it. And that is the act of clearing the temple and the teaching that we spoke about. Note that the same word, heard, in Greek, was also used in reference to the disciples hearing the curse of the fig tree in, in verse 14. Both groups, the disciples and the chief priests and scribes, heard and understood what Jesus' intent was. And recall previous studies in Mark when we, we were talking about hearing and how that's important, and this is why Mark references that here specifically. For the chief priests and scribes, the consequences of them hearing and understanding his intent here was that they were seeking to destroy him. Why? Because they feared him. I'm just reading through the verse here. The plot of the Sanhedrin is rooted in fear. Again, why? It says in the verse, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Have we heard that before about crowds being astonished at Jesus' teaching? Well, we heard it all the way back in chapter 1, verse 22, where the crowds were amazed at Jesus' teaching at the synagogue in Capernaum. And 127, where he casts out the unclean spirit. The effect of this repetition is to convey that Jesus' Jesus's authority supersedes that of the religious leaders in both the temple and the synagogue. These were the two places in Judaism where the teaching of God was revealed and practiced. And in those same two places, the teaching of Jesus supersedes the Torah and the temple, holding the crowds there in amazement. The final verse in this center component of the Markin sandwich informs us that Jesus and his disciples went out of the city when evening came. This again, just like the last lesson, is a symbol of that Jesus has parted ways with the temple cult. In his second night in Jerusalem, Jesus again separates himself from Jerusalem. All right, finishing up here. So the last part of the Markin sandwich takes us back to the fig tree that we visited in the first part. <clears throat> it's now morning, and Jesus and his, and his disciples saw the fig tree that he had previously cursed withered away at the roots. And where have we heard that expression before in Mark? That's an actual question. Anybody have an answer? Withered away at the roots. It was from the parable on the, on the sower, right? The seeds that sprouted quickly but had no depth of soil and it, quote, withered because they had no root. That's in chapter 4, verse 6. And I have to mention this because I think it's neat. The Greek words for wither and root used in, in chapter 4 are the same words used in the parable, or used here, are the same words used in the parable in chapter 4, parable of the sower. And the repetition of these words and the meaning of them is a further reminder that there will be no harvest from the temple. Yes, with all the hundreds of thousands, probably millions of bloody sacrifices being processed over and over again in this surreal environment of the temple, all the grandeur, the immense and grandiose structure, and the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people involved every day, and the sheer amount of money exchanged, 
despite all that, the temple had no fruit. So it's just like the leafy fig tree with all its promise of fruit it is as deceptive as a temple. Never mind the figs. Remember, we're even talking about the figs with the tree. The tree couldn't even produce the little pagan buds in the springtime, despite all the leafy foliage on it. So the curse of this fig tree is a symbol of God's judgment of the temple. And one commentator that I read made what I thought at first to be a rather bold statement here. Um, but it really, really isn't when we think about it. And his, what he said was that the, the common description of Jesus' cleansing the temple doesn't really have the character of a cleansing, Right? Jesus is not removing the impurities or restoring the rightful function of the temple. Rather, he's taking an axe to the root of the temple as an institution. It's not being restored, it's being dissolved. And like the fig tree, its function is withered from the roots in verse 20. And as we'll see in subsequent lessons, Jesus continues driving this point home. For example, in 13.2 he says, There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In 14.22, these are all passages in Mark that we'll get to in uh, subsequent lessons. During the first Lord's Supper, he references his own body. The temple is being broken down and in himself as a ransom for many. It's from 10.45 again. It is being raised anew in three days. A temple not made with human hands. Verses 14, verse, chapter 14, verse 58. Not the blood of animals slaughtered by the high priest on the day of atonement, but his own blood. The blood of the covenant, chapter 14, verse 24, will make Israel right with God. And at the moment of his own death, the great curtain that divides the Holy of Holies from the court of Israel is torn in two. We see that in chapter 15, verse 38. And this is really just a dramatic illustration of the dissolution of the temple as a means of approach to God. In his sacrificial death on the cross, Jesus alone is the access to God. And the fig tree symbolizes the temple in this. As the means of approach to God, the temple is fundamentally from the roots, replaced by Jesus as the center of Israel. So it's actually pervasive to think that there is any cleansing of the temple at all, knowing what we know now about Christ and his work on the cross, right? Again, the theme, faith in Christ is all that matters. So the portion is concluded in verses 23 through 25 with teachings on faith, the power of prayer, and the necessity of forgiveness. <coughs> the withered fig tree is an object lesson to the disciples to have faith in God, which is reinforced by the phrase, truly I say to you, something we've seen in previous lessons. Jesus illustrates the power of faith with hyperbole about the moving of a mountain. The trusting in the power of God makes it possible for seemingly impossible things to happen. Mark's call to faith here signifies that Jesus, and not the temple, is the object of faith. Faith is the opposite of doubting in one's heart, as we see in verse 23. Faith trusting in Jesus despite everything to the contrary and to expect from him what cannot be expected from anyone or anything else in the world. There is a connection between faith and prayer. Obviously, we know this, and we see that in these last two verses. <clears throat> True prayer is making the requests of God in faith. 
Faith believes enough to ask, and asking is rooted in the conviction that God intends that his, quote, will be done. Faith is more certain in the steadfastness of God than in human abilities or inabilities. And so Jesus says, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it. That's faith. And it will be yours. Both faith and prayer stand in continuity with God's character and in conformity with his will. Since prayer is addressed to God, then whatever you ask will be granted by God if and when it is in agreement with the will of God. Jesus' statement, of course, is not a blank check where we're invited to write down anything we want on the, the empty line, right? We see Jesus' perfect example of this in his, his prayer in Gethsemane in chapter 14. He says, Father, all things are possible for you. This is when he's facing the cross, right? Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Verse 25 gives some final instruction about forgiveness of sins, and we'll just walk through this very briefly. Conditions for effective prayer or faith, in verse 23, and forgiveness. To stand praying was a traditional posture of prayer. We see this in 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, Matthew, and Luke. To forgive others is a condition for receiving forgiveness from God. We know this as well. Both are conditions for answered prayer. And the word anyone used here suggests that the sins of the petitioner need to be forgiven as the petitioner needs to forgive those who have sinned against him or her. Faith in God, verse 22, and God doing the seemingly impossible, verse 23, through the believer's prayers, verse 24, is possible if and when the believers perceive that they are children of the Father in heaven. And that is possible only if and when their sins have been forgiven, which in turn means that they will forgive as they have been forgiven. We all know this, right? <coughs> so hopefully you found this lesson to be as much of a blessing as I did. Um, a lot of information here. I could go on and on about a couple things, but hopefully those are the high points. But I think the application here is, is pretty clear, right? Where are we putting our faith? And don't, don't take our theme this morning for granted. Uh, faith in Christ is all that matters. So thank you.